Our sermon today will be taken from Galatians 5, verse 16 to 26. This is the word of God. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who, do, who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Thus says the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Steffi. All right, glad you guys can make it with us again for one more Sunday. And uh, Chipta just made a claim that we will be worshiping forever, which is a long time. Uh, but we will eventually, and hopefully on earth as well. So um, we are uh, continuing our series in the book of Galatians. And um, this is our third to last sermon in the book of Galatians. So after this, there's, there's only two more. But we're going to put a pause to it for until January 8th, because I know a lot of you will be out of town. And I would hate for you to miss uh, the, the closing of, of the book of Galatians. So Christmas and New Year's, we'll be doing something else, but then we'll resume, resume again in, in January 8th. All right, so for the past few months, we've seen the Apostle Paul, whom God used to write the book of Galatians, took full, whole, four whole chapters throughout the whole book to warn the church in Galatia of the dangers of legalism. We've heard this every Sunday, right? Legalism is thinking that our own obedience can save us, that our own obedience can earn us a place before God. And Paul is saying that is not true. The Bible says, Old Testament, New Testament, the whole thing, it, it reminds us that true salvation is through Christ and Christ alone, through what he's done for us on the cross. That's the good news of the gospel, right? Not by what we do, but what has been done to us and for us on the cross. Finally, in chapter 5, he gets a little bit more practical. Okay, it's been kind of conceptual, logical. He reasons through scripture, and now, now he gets a little bit practical. And he addresses questions that actually we've gotten from many of you who's been hearing these ser the series. Um, and the question, um, these questions are, are, are this. If I'm saved by the work of Christ alone, what then is the purpose of the law? If it doesn't save me, if I can't earn my obedience by obeying the law, why did God give us the law in the first place? Or some of us have asked, how can I know that I'm saved? How can I know that I'm in Christ? It's, if I'm passive in my salvation, in a sense that Christ on the cross did it all for me, how can I know that I'm truly in him or not? Is it because I've said a prayer at one point in my life? Is it because I've made a decision at one point in my life? What, what are the signs of my salvation? 
Others uh, have asked, if I, if I am saved, if I am truly saved, how do I then grow in Christ? How do I grow in my salvation? Am I passive in the same sense as in my salvation? Do I just sit there and magically grow as a Christian? Is that how we grow? Um, how, how does that work? And these are all great questions. And they're, they're questions that should arise after the first four chapters of Galatians because Paul was so heavy on the gospel. And last week we touched on some of it, and Paul continues to explain and address these questions in our passage today. So I want to point out three things from our passage. One, the sign that we are in Christ. Two, the way we grow in Christ. And three, the hope we have in Christ. The sign that we are in Christ, the way we grow in Christ, and the hope we have in Christ. But before we start, uh, let's pray. Lord, as we attempt to enter into your word with all the complexities and difficulties of it, I pray that you guide not only our minds that we can address these things reasonably, logically, but let this mind enter and this knowledge go into our hearts and that you also would guard our hearts and reveal true knowledge of knowing you, not just like a reporter would know of you from data, but as a family, as a child would know a father. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, first point. The sign that we are in Christ. Now remember the context that the Galatia church, the Galatian church is in. Okay, they're currently experiencing what? Conflict and division. Galatians 5, 7, it says you're running well, you're believing in the gospel, but then what happened? In chapter 2, Paul tells us that there's a certain group that came in called the circumcision group who preached legalism. They're saying that you are saved by your obedience to the Old Testament laws, including circumcision, et cetera, et cetera. If you do these things, you can be saved. And the Galatian church who were in the gospel and running well in the gospel, believing that they're saved not by themselves, but by the work of Christ, started a fight with each other. A lot of them got confused because these people kind of came in in a manipulative way um, and entered into the church to cause division. And now the Galatian church is confused. Paul explained, you're not saved by your own works, you're saved by grace through faith in Christ. But now they're confused, how can we know who are true believers and who are, as chapter 2 says, false brothers who came in? It's really hard for them to know and differentiate between the two. Why is it hard? Because the Galatian Christians, the true brothers, those who are truly in Christ, were obedient to Christ. They were externally doing good things and obeying the law. But guess who also were doing good things externally? Guess who also were externally obeying the law? The circumcision group, weren't they? They're obeying the Old Testament commandments. They're, they're externally doing the right things, the same things that true believers would do. So what's the difference? How can you really tell what distinguishes the true Christian from the false brother or from really any other religion if the measurement is more than just external obedience? All right, Paul explains that in our passage, and Jesus does as well in the book of John and, and in many other uh, places in, in the Gospels, with the analogy of spiritual fruit. That's what, what, that's what they use. And fruit in the New Testament is talked about as a sign of one's salvation. Let's read Matthew 7, verses 16 to 20. This is, this is Jesus' words. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down 
and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. A Christian who is truly born again, a Christian who has truly relied their eternal salvation, not on their own righteousness, but on the work of Christ on the cross, will bear, produce good fruit. And implications, therefore, if we're not producing spiritual fruit, if there is no sign ever of a change of life, the Bible says we cannot know that we're truly in him. That's a hard implication from this passage, but, but let, let's, let's get into it, okay? This whole thing about fruit. What is spiritual fruit? First, it is inevitable and organic. Christian fruit is inevitable. It is unavoidable. It is inescapable. It will happen if you receive Christ. Our call to worship earlier, we read John 15, 1 to 5, and the first two verses said, Jesus again saying, I am the true vine, and my Father is a fine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. First, it's clear that it's inevitable. It will happen that if you are in Christ, if you've received him, if you're connected to the true life-giving vine, you will bear fruit. Not might, not perhaps. It will happen. But also notice the imagery here. Fruit is a live biological organism right, of a tree and a fruit. It's an organic growth. It's inevitable, but it's also organic. If the point Paul and Jesus is trying to make is just the growth itself, is just the external obedience itself, then they could have used many other analogies. For example, of a construction of a house. That, that's a growth, right? You just put one brick on top of the other, and it grows. But, but they choose to use fruit, not slabbing bricks on top of each other. Why? Because the point isn't just the external growth, but where the growth comes from, you see. The point isn't just generic external moralism. Anybody can do that. You don't have to be Christian to be a moralistic person. But the point isn't just the external fruit. It's where it comes from. See, the life and the growth of a fruit is dependent upon the health, the vigor, and the life of the vine. That's where it gets its nutrition, its life from, which then the branch can bear fruit, us being the branch. Who is the vine? Christ. See, Christian obedience is different than moralism or really other religions. It is founded in, fueled by, dependent upon Christ, the vine, through the gospel. That's what he's been, Paul's been telling us from chapters 1 to 4. Moralism... Other religions, including what the circumcision group preached back then, would say that our obedience and our morality, that's what gives me the right to be reconciled with the Creator. My good works, my patience, my love, my joy, my peace, my self-control, those are the things that earn me life. I am the source of my own life if I can obey those things. I can find eternal life, reconciliation with God, if I'm obedient, if I'm moral, if I have good behavior, and if I have good character. Christianity, the gospel says, obedience is not a requirement for knowing God. Obedience is not a requirement to have eternal life. It is the fruit of eternal life. How am I reconciled with God? It is through Christ and what he's done on the cross. See, growth fruit is inevitable and it is organic. It comes from the vine. It comes from the gospel. Okay, it's not only organic, it's not only inevitable, but it's internal. Let's, let's take a look at the list of fruits here. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, 
self-control, these things are things that are externally visible. You can see somebody having these characters, but, but ultimately these are internal things, aren't they? They're matters of the heart. You see joy, peace, patience. Often you can't see those things. What does this mean? It means that it's there because it's there. And it'll still be there, whether in public or in private. It doesn't all of a sudden show up when your pastor's around. It doesn't show up when your parents are around. It doesn't show up when you're, you know, perecate, and then it goes away when you're not. It, it's not, it doesn't come and go like that. It, it's there because it's there. It's internal. It's inevitable, it's organic, and it's internal. Lastly, it's not only organic, it's not only inevitable, it's not only internal, but it's also, it's a funny word, but I'll explain it, integral. It's integrated one with the other. It's connected, it's interdependent. Here's what I mean. Notice something interesting. Paul didn't say fruits, plural. He said the fruit of the Spirit, singular. Why would he use a singular word to describe nine different things? That's bad English, right? Bad grammar. Usually, if you want to describe nine things that is plural, you'd want to say fruits. The fruits of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. But Paul said, no, it's, it's, the, it's one fruit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Why is that? It's intentional. Although there's nine different characteristics, they're all part of an internal one fruit growth. Here's what I mean. See, if you, go, if, if you grow in true spiritual peace, you will also grow in self-control. Think about it. There does exist a fake type of peace that comes about when somebody has no self-control. You want to meet some of the most peaceful people in the world? Go hang out with the drug addict. He's very peaceful. He's chilling. He's relaxed. He's high. That's peace, right? But that's not peace in the sense of spiritual peace, as in Paul means. True spiritual peace will be coupled with self-control. That's not a peace that's caused by self-control. Another example. Uh, if you want to grow in patience, if you grow in patience, you also grow in joy. This Friday night, uh, my wife and kid is still in the U.S., they're not back yet, so I enjoyed myself a basketball game. And I watched the game, and I saw this one player, I'm not going to name names, that kept getting in trouble, and he was one call away from being kicked out of the game. And this was like during on halftime. Um, guess how he acted from the, uh, throughout the whole second half of the game? He was the most patient person there is. He tried not to lash out on the... Uh, 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 the, the judges, he tried not to lash out on the other players. He tried not to get upset. He tried, he tried to be really patient throughout the whole game. But that's not true patience. That's, that's patience driven by a desire to not be kicked out of the game, right? That's not patience with joy. You see, there, there exists a type of peace that can come without self-control. That's not the peace Paul's talking about. There comes a type of patience that's not driven by joy. That's not what Paul's talking about. One more example. Maybe some of us here are very gentle people. We're very kind. We don't stir up conflict a lot. We don't confront anyone, even when they're wrong or even when they're being unfaithful to something. We're just, we're just peacekeepers. We're gentle people. But the reason of why we're gentle and the reason why we never confront other people's unfaithfulness is because we ourselves lack in self-control. You see, because we ourselves lack in faithfulness. Here's an example. As an elder of a church, one of my responsibilities is to confront directly and lovingly, kindly, 
people who are in sin, right? If you're, if you're a member of the church and you're living in clear sin, hopefully we'll grab lunch and coffee and we'll talk and we'll hang out and, and not, you know, something that must be brought up. But guess when it is I feel less likely to confront people? It's when I myself am in sin. When I'm in sin, I don't feel like I become very gentle. I don't confront people. Why not? Not because it's true gentleness, but because it's a form of self-indulgence. You see? It's self-protection. I don't want to feel like a hypocrite, so I'm just not going to ever confront other people who are being sinful or in sin because I'm in sin. It's not, it's not, true, it's not true gentleness. It's a form of self-protection, self-indulgence. Paul is saying it, it, it's a fruit. If one grows, all grows together. You see, it's, it's inevitable, it's organic, it's internal, and it's integral, it's integrated. These characteristics can't exist one without the other because when you grow as a Christian, you don't just grow in your character, you grow in who you are as one whole being, as a person. All right, so this is how we know that we're in Christ. Not just acting well externally, not just behaving well. There's hundreds of people I can tell you that are more moral than I am, is kinder and more gentle than I am. But Christian fruit, the inevitable result of a sign that you truly are in Christ, it's internal, it's organic, it's integral. Okay, It goes beyond the external acts. The change is not primarily in what you do, but in who you are. That's Christian fruit. That's Christian growth. Paul tells us this is the sign of a believer. To identify false brothers from true brothers, to identify those who are in Christ and not in Christ, it's not just by seeing who's made a prayer or who's made a decision at one time. Those, those are, I made a decision I prayed at one time. But ask yourself, is there fruit in this person's life? Is there fruit in my life? Am I, am I seeing change in my own life and my growth uh, in Christ? All right, organic, internal, integrated. Okay, now, it, I said earlier, and it's been probably hanging out in our minds the whole time, this, this scary statement that I just said, if, if we don't have true change, if we don't have true fruit, we can't know. We, we can't know that we're Christian. We can't. There's, I'm not saying you're not, but you just can't know for sure if there is no fruit in your life. Verse 21, I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things, or those who are living in this way, those who persist in the works of the flesh, those who don't have change, will not inherit the kingdom of God. If we persist living in sin without any desire of change, we must ask ourselves, am I really in Christ? Do I really bear the signs of life, of being connected to the vine? Martin Luther, a renowned theologian in church history, rightly said, we are saved by faith alone. We are saved by faith alone. But true saving faith is never alone. Let me repeat that. We're saved by faith alone, by placing our trust in Christ. That's it. But true saving faith, faith that saves, is never alone. It will be coupled with fruit. It will bear fruit. All right. I imagine some of us might be a little worried or stirred by this first point, uh, maybe even anxious. So let's move on to our second point. Okay, as much as it is loving to reveal to someone who thinks they're in Christ but is actually not, that's loving to do that, it's unloving to do it in such a way that makes true believers doubt their salvation. Okay, that, that's not the goal here. So let, let's, let's move on to our second point. Number two, first we've seen the signs of being in Christ. Number two, the way we grow in Christ. All right, 
before we continue, let me say, some of us here, I know for a fact, I don't know all of you, but the ones that I do know, some of them are a lot harder than themselves than they need to be. They're a lot harder on themselves than they need to be. On one end, it may be true that if there's no organic, internal, integral, gospel-driven change at all in your life, then yes, it's good to go to God and ask yourself whether or not you've truly accepted Him. But on the other hand, many of you have accepted Him. And, and many of you hear this and become anxious because right now you're feeling fruitless. Right now you're feeling like there's no fruits of the Spirit that's bearing in your life. And, and look... The nature of organic growth, whether trees or fruit or, or, or human beings, it's just slow. It's really, really slow. And often, you can't even see it. And it's seasonal, right? Sometimes there's a lot. Sometimes there's not much. That's the way organic growth happens. It's not just bricks of slab putting on top of each other. It, 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 it's DNA. It's life. It's slow and it's seasonal. Being a Christian doesn't mean that you have to intensely, at all times, 24-7, be joyful, happy, peaceful, and smiling all the time. Please don't do that. I'll be really freaked out hanging out with you. I, I, that's just, it's not, it's not real. That's not, that's not what Paul's meaning in here. Christians struggle all the time. Okay, fruit can happen slow and sometimes seasonal. Look at verse 16 to 17. This is Paul telling us that, that we struggle. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Remember, Paul's addressing Christians here, true brothers, true believers. Still, verse 16 says, desire the flesh. If not, then why would he even warn you against that? Don't, don't gratify the flesh, assuming that we do, we do have this temptation to gratify the flesh. Walk by the Spirit, and He will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Verse 17, the flesh does what? Keeps us from doing the things we want to do. There are new, there's new fruit, there's new life of joy, of peace, of kindness, of goodness, of faithfulness. There's, there's newness that comes organically from the gospel internally, but sometimes the work of the flesh keeps us from doing the things we want to do. There's an internal struggle for Christians. Okay, It doesn't mean that you have to be smiling all the time, dancing your day away. It's not... That's not Christianity, okay? So, uh, even, oh, let me, let me say this. Even Paul experienced this. Paul himself, Paul, the Apostle Paul, right? The guy who planted all these churches. He, he struggled with this as well. Look at Romans 7, verse 1 to 23. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive the law of sin that dwells in my members. Paul struggled too. It's okay. It's okay that it's slow sometimes. It's okay that it's seasonal. Okay? So, how do we then, how, if we are in Christ, how do we then grow as a Christian? How do we then gratify the, the Spirit and not our flesh? Two things from verses 16 to 17 that we read earlier. Yeah, you can read it again if you want, but, but there's two things from it. One, you grow as a Christian. If you're truly in Christ, you're saved by faith, and your faith does couple come with fruit. Okay, it's evidence of your salvation. One, by not gratifying the desires of the flesh. Two, by gratifying the desires of the Spirit. Or in other words, one, by obeying even when you don't desire it. Two, by seizing obedience when you feel even the smallest desire for it. Let me repeat that. You grow as a Christian... If one, you obey, even when you don't desire it, even when the flesh is winning, obey. 
And two, however, seize obedience when you feel even the smallest desire for it. That's how you grow as a Christian. Okay, first, let's talk about the first one. We can be part of cultivating our growth by not gratifying the desires of the flesh or by obeying even when we don't feel like it. If you're like me, oftentimes the works of the flesh is still, it's there. It's there. We feel the list in verse 19. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, envy, a desire to worship other things, which is idolatry and sorcery, desire for drunkenness. And even just so we realize how deep our sexual immorality can be, Paul uses a word so gruesome and so sexually immoral that it makes us blush even saying it. Orgies. I have to say it's in the verse. It's it's embarrassing. But a Christian who truly knows the depth of their depravity, they, they see it, and they're broken about it, and they feel it. And here Paul is saying, as Christians, you still feel the urges for these things. Sexual moralities, rivalries, envy, division, jealousy... To, to various degrees. And Paul is saying, that's, that's what being in the kingdom means. There, there's an internal fight. Don't gratify it. Gratify the Spirit. Obey the Spirit, even when you still feel like doing the above things. Don't gratify the flesh. Instead, verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Simple. Or in other words, if, you're, if you have life in the Spirit, if you're connected to the life-giving vine, to the gospel, to Christ, and you have life and you feel this internal battle, obey even when the works of the flesh above is still very much felt in your life. That's the first one. Second one. First one. Okay, let me repeat. The first one, obey even when you don't feel like it. The second one, seize obedience. Take hold of obedience. Gratify the Spirit even or when you feel even the smallest desire for it. If you're truly in Christ, you will produce fruit, remember? Internal, organic fruit. Gratify it. Seize it. Take a hold of it. It's like I I feel this small inkling to get in the Word and to pray. Seize it. No matter how small it is, take it, obey it, follow that desire. I feel this very tiny desire to consider jumping into this long process of forgiving somebody who's wronged me very badly. Take it. Follow it. Even the smallest hint of it. Seize it. Obey it. Gratify the Spirit. Walk in that way. Now, this sounds like legalism, doesn't it? A little bit. We've, we've been fighting so much against legalism, and now Paul kind of switches. It's all about what's been done to you on the cross, and now Paul is saying what you do in Christ. So it does feel like legalism, but, but it's not. We're not saying that your ability or your success in fighting the flesh and gratifying the Spirit saves you. We're not saying that. We're not saying it makes God love you any more or any less. No, salvation is through faith alone. It does not depend on your ability to do. Remember the first four, um, first four chapters? It's through Christ and Christ alone. But this passage is saying, once you are in Christ, once you do have this new life, you are active There is activity involved in your growth. You don't just sit there and magically grow as a Christian. You fight the flesh, and you follow the Spirit. Now, that shouldn't lead us to pride, because the strength to obey, the opportunity to obey, the desire to obey in the first place comes from Him. But nevertheless, our obedience does play a role in our growth in the new life we have in Christ. By obeying when we don't feel like it, and by seizing obedience when you feel even the smallest hint of it. That's how you grow. 
wage an internal war to the passions of your flesh, the old self, our sin. But, I want to point out, at times, God turns up the heat. At times, God catalyzes or intensifies our growth. Remember the context that they're in. The circumcision group sent, were sent into Galatia, and they're, they're fighting. There's conflict, right? This is how God intensifies our growth, through conflict. Conflict is a way for us to cultivate and measure our fruit. It's a way for us to grow our fruit, and it's a way for us to measure our fruit. Okay. Paul speaks harshly against the one circumcision group dude that like sent all these people, right? This guy sent all these people and they came in, manipulated the church and started preaching false doctrine. Not just, not just any false doctrine, but, but a false doctrine that attacks the very heart of Christianity, which is Christ himself, which is the gospel. Paul says this one guy, speak harshly against him. Directly, boldly, you have, you have to, you must, um, for the sake of the gospel, for the purity and peace of the church. But, he says, among each other, among each other, among those who are being manipulated, among those who are confused about doctrine, um, you, you do it kindly. Church arguments can get really, really bad sometimes. It can get really bad. I've seen it go from okay to bad to worse to horrendous. It's scary. It is. Paul is saying, I'm not saying if there's theological disputes or arguments about here, things here and there, I'm not saying don't, don't argue about it. Don't not talk about it. Talk about it. It's good. Discuss it. But, but discuss it as fruit bearers. Interpersonal conflict, like what the Galatian church was experiencing, is often what God uses to help catalyze our growth, speed up our growth, and it helps us measure our growth. First, it catalyzes our growth. When we argue, the reason, why, the reason why things go from bad to worse is because when we argue, we argue as if we weren't sinners. We argue as if we weren't saved by grace. We argue as if we have no wrong to begin with. That's, that's the problem. We forget the depth of depravity we came from. Just how far Christ had to go to save you. We're not, I'm not saying don't argue. I'm saying argue as sinners. Argue as saved sinners. Argue as fruit bearers. Okay, so there's two groups here. There's the believers who are leaning towards legalism. Okay? They're arguing with the believers who are leaning towards grace in the Galatian church, right? Circumcision group came in, confused things. Now there's two groups in the church. There's the group that lean towards legalism. There's a group that lean towards grace. And, and, and they're arguing with each other. And Paul says earlier that they're abiding and devouring one, each other, uh, one another. And, and that's scary. Don't don't do that. I want to point out that these two groups, both groups, can easily fall into pride. Okay, first, it's, it's obvious how the legalistic group can fall into pride, right? And therefore cause them to argue in a self-righteous way. That's obvious. If, if you believe that you're more loved by God or that you're better, you're more valuable or you're more saved or whatever, by your own obedience, of course you'll have pride in your life. And of course, as you argue with somebody else, you'll bring that pride with you. But, but I think what we're saying is, well, Paul is, Paul is warning both of them. Even people that lean towards grace, even people that lean towards the gospel can have pride too. How is that? I've heard a pastor do this. I think it's really interesting. Have you ever read um, in Luke, in the, the book of Luke in the New Testament, one of the gospels, Jesus' analogy 
and the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. I'm, I'm sure that's a pretty popular story. A lot of you probably heard it, right? There's two people praying. There's a Pharisee and there's a tax collector. And the tax collector, when he prayed, he goes to God. He was on his knees. I think this is Luke 18. And he was, he was so humble, right? He was saying, God, I'm, I'm a sinner. All I can do is just ask you for your mercy. All I can do is just beg you for grace. I'm a sinner. I don't deserve anything. Please have mercy on me. And the legalistic Pharisee, the other person in the temple, he's done a lot of religious things. He was, he was very prideful. And this is how he prayed to God, word for word, from the ESV. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector here. I'm, right, I'm, I'm, I'm a Pharisee. I've, I've done all, here's my list of accomplishments. I thank you for not making me like this scum. That's what he's saying. The Pharisees, obviously the Pharisees can have pride on them, but you know what gospel-centered Christians often do if they're not careful? You know what we often do? We're, we're a third person, and we're on our knees, and we're praying to God, and we point at the Pharisee, right? And we say, oh God, I thank you that you didn't make me like this Pharisee, this, this legalistic, self-righteous, this prideful Pharisee. I'm a sinner. I'm saved by grace and grace alone. Look how humble I am. I don't rely on my grace. I, I rely on you, unlike this, unlike this Pharisee. Right? We can tend to do that too. See, see, legalism is so deep. It's so tricky. It's in every single part of your body that we can even use the gospel to be legalistic and the gospel to find pride. That's what Paul is saying. Be careful, both groups. If you truly are in Christ, if your brother's in Christ, be mindful, be careful to not fall into pride, which will cause you to bite and devour one another. Argue as saved sinners. Argue as those who are in the gospel. Okay. So, when conflict arised in them, he's saying, he's saying when conflict arises, the desire to envy and have enmity and have rivalries and dissension and division, all these things come up, whether you're in the grace camp or in the legalistic camp. Whichever way you, you lean, you'll have these things come up. And, and when it comes up, God's putting you in a ring. Imagine a boxing ring. When conflict happens, God's putting you in a boxing ring, and he's saying, fight. He says, here's an opportunity for you to fight against what? Your flesh. When conflict arises, you must know, first and foremost, you need to aim your glove, not at the other person, but at your old self. When conflict arises, does not arise a desire to be envious and, and divide and hate and jealousy and enmity. He's putting in a ring. Fight against your old self. Here it is. Here's an opportunity. Gratify the spirit, not the flesh. Take away, put away your fleshly desires. Conflict presents plenty of opportunity to choose either works of the flesh or fruits of the spirit, fruit of the spirit, opportunity to grow. Okay, second, it's not only, conflict's not only opportunity to enter into battle, but it's also opportunity to see how much you've matured in the faith. I, I won't put this point for too long. But as earlier I said, growth that is organic and slow, it's, it's hard to see, right? And if, um, um, why is it hard to see? Because you're always hanging out with yourself. <laughs> Here's what I mean. You've probably noticed my wife and my daughter isn't here, right? They've been in the U.S. for a month. I went with them, uh, and I came back a little bit earlier. 
because I love you guys, and I, and I, and I want to be here, and I need, I need to be here. It's great. But I came back earlier, but you haven't seen them for a month. And when she comes back and she brings Elena with her, guess what everybody's going to say? Oh, my gosh, she's grown so much. She's so different. I've seen so much change. I've seen so much growth in her. But Tati, my wife, who's with her every day, wouldn't, wouldn't see the growth as clearly as you guys do because she's with her all the time. She's hanging out with, she sees the grass. But you guys, that skipped a whole month, and you're like, oh my gosh, she's grown so much. Oftentimes, it's hard to measure how much we've grown because you're hanging out with yourself all the time, <laughs> right? You're never away from yourself. It's hard to see what growth is unless you, know, so you haven't seen yourself for a while, which is impossible. So conflict is, is an opportunity for you to measure that. How much have I grown? Man, I would have handled this situation way differently two years ago. I'm a little bit surprised of, of how, what I'm experiencing right now. So it, it's, it's a way for you to grow and fight your old flesh. It's, it's a way to catalyze your growth, but it's also a way to measure, for you to measure your growth. Okay. So a Christian goes through seasonal, sometimes slow, but will experience organic, internal, and integral fruit, although it's often a struggle. And when we choose to cultivate the spirit and gratify the spirit instead of the flesh, we grow, and God catalyzes that growth and helps us measure it often through conflict. Okay, let's go on to our third point. But if we fail, if, if, if we talk about all this, and it is, it is hard things to do, Right? We talked about fruit and growth and love and joy, peace. Those are hard things to do. I mean, I mean, if I tell you to read the Bible, you can do that. But if I tell you to have peace, that's hard. Right? Go to church. That's easy. Have joy. Okay, I'll have joy. It's, it's hard. You can't just do it. You can't just pick up a joy and have it. It's hard. What if we fail? What if we don't experience much growth? What if... Um, the non-Christians, if you're here today and you're still figuring Christianity out and you're still wanting to know more about it, I think that's great. You might hear this and think that Christianity is overbearing. It's, it's too much. It's too much to handle. And if you are in Christ and you have received Christ today, you might think that it's impossible to grow. What if I still fail and, and I more often than not gratify the flesh rather than the spirit? What, where is my fate? What is my fate then? Where is my hope found? Third point, short and sweet, hopefully. Point number three the hope that we have in Christ. Friends, if you're here today and you are truly in Christ, you've truly received him as Lord and Savior, and, and, and you're growing, you're, you're experiencing new life, let this truth be a soothing reminder to you. And if you're here today and you're not in Christ and you're, you're, you're figuring out Christianity and, and trying to learn about it more and you're seeking, I hope that this one point sticks with you. If, if you get anything else, I hope this one point sticks with you. I want to point out a really weird verse which is verse 24, says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have, cru have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It's a funny verse because it seems like it's making a statement. It's making a proclamation that if you're in Christ, you, you have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, as if the old man no longer lives and is, and is completely dead. But it's, I say it's funny because it'd be contradicting to what we just talked about this whole time. It'd be contradicting to verse 16 and 17 and verse 24 that says, no, 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 you haven't truly crucified at all. The passion is still, like, it's still, there's still an internal struggle. 
So what does Paul mean? How can Paul say that if you're in Christ, you have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, but yet we still feel it wiggling and living in our lives sometimes? How can both be true? To this, we've got to look to the cross. A good analogy, surprising analogy actually, happens to be the cross itself. See, when criminals back then, uh, in the day of Rome, when criminals back then were crucified, the official time of death that's noted on their legal court document is the time when they were hung on the cross, not the time when they actually physically drew their last breath. Do you know what I'm saying? If, if, you're, if you're hung on the cross, that's when you die. Not, you're still alive. You're on the cross. You're still alive. But legally, you're dead. Your possessions no longer belong to you. Your wife is now single. You're, you know, it's like, it's like you're, you're, you're as if you're dead, although you're still, you're still breathing. So if you're crucified, I don't mean to make light of this, but I think we're further removed from that to be able to. If you're crucified at 5 p.m. and you physically died at 9 p.m., your recorded time of death is not 9 p.m., it's 5 p.m., right? But see, although you're legally dead at 5 p.m., physically, in reality, you're still alive, you're still struggling. You still have a few last remaining breaths to fight and remain alive. They're legally counted as dead with their passions and desires and status and authority and possessions earlier before they're actually physically dead. This is how we could understand verse 24. And those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. The old man, if we receive Christ, legally is dead. Our crimes and his or her crimes or sins, flesh, no longer has power over us. It's dead and done and away with. However, though it's legally dead, though legally our old flesh and our old self is as good as dead, it's still wiggling. You see? It's still kicking around. It's still struggling. It will never win. It won't win. It can't win because it's been it's dead. But it's, it's still drawing its last breaths. So when was our old self crucified? We didn't do it. You didn't do this. I didn't do this. Who did? Who crucified the old self to where it's legally powerless over us? Romans 6, 6-7. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For no one who has died has been set, for, for one who has died has been set from sin. Our old self was crucified. Our old sins, our old flesh, and the consequences thereof has been crucified with Christ when he died on the cross for us. This is where our sins are forgiven. And finally, now have life and reconciliation with God. Our sin is too huge, too massive, too deep, too horrific to just be paid by you coming to church once a week. It's too massive, too big, too huge, too heavy to be paid by you reading the Bible three times a week at a good week. It's, it's too big. It has to be killed. It has to be crucified. And the only way that is to happen is through the cross. Praise God that he himself died in our place. That the old man, with his passions and desires and flesh and authority and power and strength, is dead and may be proclaimed legally dead. And now you are free. You are alive because your God died for you. This is how you find life, and this is our hope. This is our salvation. Remember one thing. Your fruit did not die for you. 
Your fruit did not die for you. Jesus died for you. Your fruit is a result of the life that comes out of the death of your king. This is the sign that even in seasons of seeming fruitlessness and dryness, you should be discontent about it, but never hopeless. For no matter how strongly your old self is currently struggling, in Christ it's been crucified and legally no longer lives and has no ultimate power over you. Trust in him. Rest in him. For in his death you will find life. Stop trying to earn it on your own. It will never be enough. In his death alone can true life unto God be found. Where organic, internal, and integrated fruit will inevitably appear. And when it does, walk in step with it, obey it, follow it, even when the flesh is still wiggling. Gratify the spirit, not the flesh. You want to have true joy? You want to have true peace, true goodness and love? No matter what circumstances in life you're in, cultivate this fruit. Gratify the desires of the spirit, even when doing it feels as painful as death to self. Gratify the spirit, not the flesh. This is how you grow in knowing him, the fountain of life, who is broken for you on a rugged cross. And from it appears a life-giving vine flowing out true, organic, internal, and integrated love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Let's pray. Father, what an amazing passage that you tell us in you we may find life and in mercy and grace that we may find a living vine who in which when we are engrafted, connected to that vine through faith, we may find life. And also the truth that the only way that vine can be life-giving vine is if it dies and pays for our sins and our punishment and the consequences of the passions and the desires of our old self. That's why you died, because of us. And now receiving that, we are crucified with you. We are crucified to the world. We no longer live, but Christ lives in us. And, and my life now is lived for him who loved me and died for me. And Lord, when, we, when, when this happens, true fruit will bear and have mercy on us and give us grace that we may obey it and follow it even when the flesh is still wiggling around trying to, trying to take over. We know that in the gospel it will never win, not because of our strength, but because of your crucifixion, that in it we have died. Thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.